Gerald Olson may have been in the right church, but he was definitely in the wrong pew. Now, I say that figuratively and reservedly, for I do not know if he ever attended a church at all. Gerald Olson thought he could give his ailing brother the most precious Christmas gift, a chance at good health. But Olson's suicide wish to offer his heart to his 56-year-old brother could not be granted. Even if the organ were suitable, doctors said a transplant was impossible because the heart had stopped pumping. If it fits, and I'm pretty sure it will, as one last wish, I'd like to offer him mine, so please do your best. Thanks, and Merry Christmas. Olson wrote those words in a seven-page suicide letter found near his body. Authorities said Olson drove his van to a Florida hospital, parked outside the emergency room entrance, and shot himself. You can't take a non-beating heart out of a dead body and use it, said a hospital spokesperson. Heart transplants have to be a bit more well-planned. His brother wasn't even in the state. Olson's brother Bob was being treated for an enlarged heart and had been waiting for a transplant for three years. Gerald Olson wanted his death to mean more than his life. He wanted to donate his heart to his older brother. And his main purpose for committing suicide at the hospital, said Detective Steve Wiley, was to make his heart available for his brother. And unfortunately, he failed. Right church, wrong pew. A willingness to sacrifice, but a misled application. Actually, Gerald Olson wasn't even in the right church. His willingness to sacrifice is marred by his inability to cope with reality and his extreme lack of joy in this life. In a passage of the suicide letter addressed to his daughter, Lisa Marie, he wrote these words. He said, quote, I'm so sorry it had to come to this, honey, but lately there's been too many downs and no ups for me on this roller coaster of life. What may have looked on the outside like a noble sacrifice was actually an escape act. It was a loss of a good life which had the potential of touching so many others. What Gerald needed was a different perspective. He needed a Paul perspective, Apostle Paul. And as I stand here today, it's my conviction that we all need that. We could all use it. Warren Wearsby captured the simple essence of that perspective when he said, quote, Life is not a series of disappointing ups and downs. Rather, it is a sequence of delightful ins and outs. God works in, we work out. The example comes from Christ. The energy comes from the Holy Spirit. And the result of that is joy. From which perspective do you view life? As we near the close of chapter 2 in the book of Philippians, Paul shows himself to be a man willing to sacrifice himself for the benefit of others, but with the right application, not the wrong one. He has the ability, with Christ's help, to cope with the reality of his own difficult situation. He was in prison, and still there is no lack of joy in his spirit. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, if you would. As we've seen so far, Paul's been exhorting us to develop a Christ-like pattern of life. 
And in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, he concludes this exhortation just before he gives us a couple of concrete examples of people who have exemplified such a life. In order to get the whole context, I want you to do something for me this morning. I want you to just close your eyes for a moment and listen as I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. See if you can get into Paul's flow of thought here, okay? Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world." holding fast the faithful word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Amen. In summarizing all that he said so far, Paul really gets to the heart behind Christ, a Christ-like pattern of life. He's saying here that a Christ-like pattern of life actually is engaged in ministry. And as we devote ourselves to Christ in humble service to others, we become a source of great joy to others, and they become a source of great joy to us. Many people have strange ideas of what ministry is all about. They may think it's what I and the other pastors do here on Sunday morning. But let me tell you, ministry is what you do every single day of the week as a Christian. There are no set hours. For Christians, ministry is not something you can turn on and off like a light switch. It's a way of life. Is that right? Today, I want to highlight three things that I think we can glean from the life and writing of Paul deeply embedded in just these two verses, in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, that will hopefully enhance our understanding of ministry. And the first thing is this. 
I think Paul indicates to us here in these verses that number one, ministry has its rewards. Ministry has its rewards. First of all, back up a little bit to to verse 16 again and look at the end of verse 16. Paul says, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I didn't run in vain or toil in vain. On the day that Christ comes for all of us, and all our works are inspected, what will be the outcome? What will be the outcome of it all for you and for me? For many, there will be great rewards. For others, not so much. You ever think about that? You ever think about the rewards you might get? Paul did. He thought about it a lot. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, Paul says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 10, Paul says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and somebody else is building upon it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold and silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It'll be revealed with fire, Paul says, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. In other words, you're just getting by by the skin of your teeth. What camp are you in? See, Paul thought about this a great deal. He wanted to be able to rejoice in the fact that his being engaged in the ministry would somehow pay off, right? Not to his benefit, necessarily, but for the sake of Christ. He didn't want all his efforts for the kingdom to be wasted, in other words. Every parent wants their child to grow into something that they can be proud of, yeah? The same is true in the spiritual realm, you know. Everyone who is engaged in the work of the ministry wants to see fruit from their labors. Paul loved these Philippians so much that he spent a great deal of himself on them. He poured himself into them and out for them. So that one day when Christ returned, they would rejoice together. To see that day, in Paul's eyes, would be reward enough. Every one of us ought to look at ministry that way. We ought to be pouring ourselves into someone or some, a bunch of people in order that one day we will see them complete in Christ and be grateful to have been used by the Lord to minister to them and with them. Is that right? Are you currently engaged in that? There's no greater joy, you know, than see, seeing people develop and grow and become healthy as a Christ follower and knowing that you've got a piece of that as a mentor, as a discipler, as a friend. We may never see the rewards of that devotion in this life and that can be difficult. That's really hard. But we can become discouraged and disillusioned in all this. But the Bible promises that someday we will have cause to rejoice. 
Galatians 6 verse 9 says, And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we what? Don't grow weary. So to be engaged in the ministry means that we can count on rewards. Too many people, however, focus on those rewards and forget about the realities involved in ministry for Christ. And so Paul gets our minds out of the clouds here, out of the reward clouds, and brings us back down to earth by showing us by his own present circumstances that not only does ministry have its rewards, but secondly, ministry has its realities. It's realities. Look at verse 17. Philippians 2, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. If Paul were writing from a typical American consumer worldview or from a prosperity perspective, I'm sure he would only have written about points one and three of this message that I'm giving today the boundless rewards of the ministry, and the blessed result of the ministry, which is joy. He would have left out completely point number two, which is what I'm on right now, about the reality of ministry. Instead, Paul gets real with us. He doesn't feed us candy-coated philosophy. He knows that in reality, being engaged in ministry is going to cost you something. You know what it costs? Your whole life. My whole life. That's why many people aren't involved in ministry today. It's not that they aren't aware of the cost. They're well aware of the cost. I think they're just not willing to commit to the cost. Many of us approach commitment to ministry with great, great hesitation. Much like the pig that was walking with the hen on a backcountry road when they came upon a church and the sign on the front said, breakfast served, ham and eggs. And the chicken wanted to go in and stop, but the pig said, no way, and he ran off down the road. Finally, the hen caught up to the pig and practically dragged him back to the church, but couldn't get him through that door. The chicken says, what's the matter with you? Why won't you go in? To which the pig replied, for you, it's only a contribution. For me, it's total commitment. That fairly well describes the present attitude toward being involved in active ministry of a lot of people. We're afraid of the realities that are involved, right? What are some of those realities? Number one, there's the reality of sacrifice. Ministry means giving of yourself. Look at verse 17 again. If I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Paul likens himself to a drink offering here. You know what this is? This is the language of sacrificial offerings, which was practiced by both the Jews and the pagans surrounding pagan religions. A drink offering was usually a cup of wine poured out on the ground or upon the sacrifice to to honor the deity to which the sacrifice was being made. Now remember, Paul was in prison when he was writing this, correct? He may very well have been thinking that martyrdom was a very real possibility for him. In looking at this inescapable reality, Paul viewed his lifeblood as a libation poured out to honor God. If you look at Numbers chapter 15 and then chapter 28, verses 6 and 7, it talks about those drink offerings in the Old Testament sacrifices. 
Paul used this descriptive word being poured out, picturing the nature of his life as he was engaged in the ministry of introducing people to Jesus Christ and helping them to become his committed followers. That's our mission statement. Do you know that you're going to pour your lifeblood into that if you're following that mission? His life was being poured out continually for that. He was actually spent on the work of the ministry. It's interesting to note, however, that this word is a passive word in the original language. What does that mean? It means that Paul was not producing this action. It means he was being acted upon by some outside force. The pouring out of Paul's life in ministry was something that God did through him. He didn't do it for God. God did it through him. See the subtle difference? My friends, you and I need to realize that if God is the one who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, then our commitment to the ministry Christ has called us to should be total, the ham, not the eggs, right? In other words, we should be willing to allow God to pour himself out through us. Paul was looking at his possible death here as a free will offering for the sake of the church. A free will offering. He was only 25 at his death, yet his life was one of great impact. When news of his death was cabled from Egypt, the Princeton Seminary Bulletin declared, quote, no young man of his age has ever given more to the service of God and humanity. A prominent Yale professor stated, quote, no undergraduate since I have been connected with Yale has done so much for Christ in four short years than he did. His name was William Borden, and his story affords a stirring illustration of a life totally consecrated to Christ. During his first term as a freshman, Borden searched out and gathered up Christian classmates for daily prayer. Borden's small morning prayer group gave birth to a movement that soon spread across the campus, and by the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in those groups. Four years. At the beginning of his sophomore year, he wrote home to his mother of his strategy. This is what he wrote. He wrote, Charlie, Jeff, and I got together to get today and divided up the class, about 300 men. The plan is for each of us to have a quarter of the class as his parish and to know every individual man. It will take time, but we believe it will pay off. The names were gone over one by one, and when it came to one, it was a hard proposition. There would be an ominous pause. Who's going to take that guy? Nobody wanted the responsibility. Then Bill's voice would be heard. Put him down to me. A sailing friend said of him, Bill hunts up the worst skunks in college and goes after him. It was in chasing down these so-called skunks that Bill became aware of another mission field, New Haven, as a seaport midway between New York and Boston seemed to gather every sordid sort of riffraff and vagrant, tramp and hobo, saloons, gambling halls, and brothels sprang up in abundance. No one rescue mission existed, not one, to bring relief in the gospel to the down and out. 
So Borden felt something needed to be done, so he gathered his friends to pray, rented a room in a dive on the strip, and began to hold evangelistic meetings there. Thus was born the Yale Hope Mission. As that work grew, Bill, unostentiously wealthy, bought the entire building for a halfway house. Many a shattered life was reclaimed for Christ in that place. Not till the books of heaven are opened will you know what Bill Borden had done by opening Yale Hope Mission, it was said by a classmate. He said he's a missionary first, last, and all the time. A passion for souls never seemed absent from him. He appraised his material possessions and natural endowments, not by the standard of self-indulgence or worldly ambition, but what he could use them for and the adaptability for building the kingdom of God. And scarcely a moment of his life was lost to that great end. The issue for Borden was simply one of obedience. There must be a definite determination to do God's will. He once urged a gathering of students. He said this, he said, do you lack power? Ask yourself, he said, have I ever truly surrendered to Christ? Have I definitely consecrated myself, put myself at God's disposal to use as he deems best? Obedience, which is the price of power, must not only be absolute, he said, but daily. And then he asked them the question. He said, are we paying this part of the price? Look at Paul's perspective on this. Not only in Philippians, but in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But however, I consider my, my life worth nothing to me. He said, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, he writes something similar. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls, he said to the Corinthians. See, Paul was willing to be sacrificed for the benefit of others. In fact, at one point, he was even willing to give up his own salvation if it meant that his fellow Jews would come to Christ. Romans chapter 9, verse 3 says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's an incredible sacrifice. That he would be willing to give up his own salvation for them. That's total commitment. Let me ask you a question. I asked myself this question as I was preparing this. How many of us would be willing to go that far even for a family member or someone we loved? Now the next question follows. Would you be willing to do it for an enemy? Christ did. Christ did. Isaiah said that in, in Isaiah 53, verse 12, Isaiah said about Christ, he poured himself out to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. A good friend of mine, teacher and a pastor, once told me about a young Christian girl he knew who had such a heart and concern for her family to come to know Christ by faith that she prayed that if her death would be the catalyst for her family's salvation, then she would surely be willing to die. 
If my memory serves me right, it was within one or two years after that that this girl was killed in a drowning accident. And through that tragedy, her entire family eventually came to know the Lord. Now, I'm not standing here asking you to give up your life. Because I know half the time I'm not even willing to give up my sleep, much less, much less my life. And you probably can relate to that, right? We cling to our stuff. We cling to our time. We cling to our things and we cling to our creature comforts. We have a white-knuckle grip on our way of life even when it's going downhill at 200 miles an hour. Is that right? But you know, too many of us want to cling to this life as though it had everything in the world in eternity to offer us. We can't fathom pouring ourselves out or expending ourselves for others, but God is presently engaged in prying our fingers loose from the temporal things of this world that we might grasp the eternal things. That's what growth in Christ is about. Now, God knows I'm not asking you to be willing to let go of your life so that your enemies can be saved. I would never ask you to do that. But Jesus could at any moment. Paul says the reality of ministry is sacrifice. There's also another real side of ministry. It's the reality of service. Reality of service. Paul says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, we are saved to serve. The word Paul uses for service here is the word from which we get our English word liturgy. That refers to a sacred service or some sort of administration, ministration. It was used in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of priestly functions, what was the main function of a priest in the Old Testament? Anybody know? What was the main function? And offers sacrifices, right? Exactly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says this about us. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We're priests. And our job is to offer sacrifice and service. As part of a New Testament priesthood, we are to be engaged in the function of offering up sacrifices. What, you may be asking, are those sacrifices? Didn't Jesus offer the final sacrifice? Well, of course he did. Interestingly, though, these things that Scripture talks about as our sacrifices, they all flow out of our engagement in ministry. I'm not going to read the verses for you, but I'll tell tell you them so that you can write them in your notes. But Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2 says that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, our bodies, right? Present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is a reasonable service of worship. Romans chapter 15 and verse 16 identifies people that we lead to Jesus as our offerings to God. Philippians 4 and verse 18, just a couple of chapters from now, talks about the fact that the giving of our resources are considered offerings. And Hebrews chapter 13 
And verses 15 and 16 identify our praise to God as an offering. It's the fruit of our lips which give thanks and confess His name. Amen? And also in verse 16 of Hebrews 13, it says that we, as we are doing good and sharing with those in need, those are sacrifices that we offer to God. See, William Borden's outreach ministry was not just confined to the Yale campus. He cared about widows and orphans and the disabled as well. He rescued drunks from the streets of New Haven. One of Bill Borden's friends wrote this. He wrote that he might often be found in the lower parts of the city at night on the street in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant to which he had taken a poor hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead men to Christ. Borden's missionary call eventually narrowed to the Muslim Kansu people of China. And once he fixed his eyes on that goal, Borden never wavered. He also challenged all of his classmates to consider missionary service. One of them said of him, quote, He certainly was one of the strongest characters I have ever known, and he put backbone into the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him, and I always felt he was, he was of the stuff martyrs were made of and heroic missionaries of more modern times. See, engagement in ministry involves the reality of sacrifice, the reality of service, and then another reality, the reality of stamina. Stamina. I don't know how many of you can relate to that. Look at verse 16. We'll back up to verse 16 of Philippians 2 for this one. Paul talks about the fact that he wanted to have reason to to glory because he did not run in vain or toil in vain. That, that indicates stamina is needed. Running, toiling. Paul viewed the ministry as a race and himself as an athlete. He poured himself into it through self-discipline and hard work. In fact, he used the same terminology of pouring himself out as, a, as an offering and as an athlete at the very end of his ministry. As he wrote to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, this is what Paul wrote at the end of his life. Very familiar words. For I am already being poured like out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You want to be able to say that when you come to that place in your life? I do. So many Christians are content to be armchair athletes. You know what I mean by that, right? The kind that when the spotlights are on and the stadium is filled with screaming fans, they think to themselves, I could be out there. I'm as good as those guys. And that may well be true. But if you're not willing to spend the time in strenuous preparation and grueling discipline, you will be frustrated. Paul was not confused about the fact that ministry involved pushing yourself to the outer limits. He ran hard. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, he says that he ran and he toiled. Read it. He ran and he toiled. The words indicate extreme strenuous effort. To the point of exhaustion. In fact, the word toil means to be spent with labor to the point of fatigue. Indeed, 
the history books say, William Borden held nothing back. One entry in his personal journal that defined the source of his spiritual strength simply said this, quote, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time, unquote. Oh, I would be hesitant to write something like that, right? That is a heavy call, isn't it? But this is what Paul is urging us to do. Friends, you and I are God's chosen people, called and commissioned, set apart for sacrifice and service to Jesus Christ. Amen? To be engaged in the work of the ministry. And for how long? Well, Ephesians 4 tells us how long. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And you know when that'll be? When he comes back. In other words, it ain't over till it's over. But that doesn't mean we're to burn ourselves completely out by getting involved in everything that comes down the pike. Let me bring some balance to this, shall I? Because I've heard many, many pastors preach and talk about the ministry saying this, I'd rather you burn out than rust out. I agree about the not rusting out part. But I flat out disagree with the idea of burning out for Jesus. And I think Paul would too. Paul's idea of ministry engagement was neither to burn out or rust out. You know what he wants? He wants to finish out. Finish out. In chapter 3, Paul lays the goal out with perfect clarity. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or already am perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's not burning out for Christ. That's finishing out for Christ. And the writer of Hebrews puts it in a very similar way. In chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 he says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance. That's not burning out. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We do this, how? By keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Former Oklahoma University football coach Bud Wilkinson once described the physical state of the American public by saying this, quote, America's physical condition is akin to the situation on any given Sunday in football stadiums throughout the NFL. 22 men on the field desperately in need of rest and 80,000 screaming fans in the stands desperately in need of exercise. And statistics indicate that it's the same situation in the church. It's just a handful who are out there in the race in most churches, about 10% in any given church across the board, according to stats, while the other 90% sit in the stands yelling out the instructions. Now, I'm thankful that that's not the case here. And I'm not just saying that. 
We really have a lot of people involved in ministry in this church, and I am so thankful and appreciative of that, appreciative. I mean, Jesus Christ is at work, amen? That's good. But Paul tells us to get out of the stands and onto the field. So which group are you in? Are you joyful in your Christian walk? If not, maybe it's because you're not doing what God called you to do. You know, when a mother isn't mothering, she experiences a loss of joy. When a carpenter isn't building, he isn't joyful. He's frustrated. When a Christian isn't serving Christ, his joy is severely diminished and stunted. The full joy of being a Christian is only experienced when we are following Jesus, even when it's hard. Is that right? The promise of future joy is what gets us through the tough stuff. It's what Christ focused on. And we need really to be like hurdlers, running with one eye in front of us to get over the obstacles and the other eye on the finish line where Jesus beckons us. So not only do we need to see the rewards of the ministry and embrace the real realities of the ministry, but finally, Paul says here, we need to see that ministry also not just has rewards and realities, but it has results. Look at verse 18. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. The result of the sacrifice, the service, the running, the toiling, and the expending of ourselves, you know what the result is? Full joy, full joy and shared joy. It's multiplied. Note the emphatic repetition of joy in verses 17 and 18. If I were to write this out literally according to the original language, it would say this, I constantly rejoice and rejoice with you all. And in the same way, I want you to constantly rejoice and rejoice with me. It's repeated for emphasis. Only a person who has found freedom in Jesus Christ can understand joy in the midst of sacrifice and service. In the third century AD, Cyprian, who later became Bishop of Carthage and was actually martyred for his faith, wrote a letter to an old friend about what he had discovered. He wrote these words, this seems a cheerful world Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed to some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the high roads, pirates on the seas, and in the amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It's really a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians, and I am one of them. John chapter 16, Jesus says these words in verse 20, 
as he's foretelling his departure to his disciples. He says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. You should underline that. Verse 22, therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Verse 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. John remembered that and wrote it yet again in his first letter, in 1 John chapter 5, in verses 4 and 5, we read these words. Who is the one who overcomes this world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who is the one who overcomes this world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. Our faith. Friends, let me say this. It's only Jesus Christ who can put joy into the joyless work of the 21st century. Joy is the result of ministry engagement. So where are you today? Are you in the right church but the wrong pew? You may be thinking after this message seriously that you're in the wrong church. Well, if you're looking for a church that requires nothing of you than to be a spectator, then you might be right. You might be in the wrong church. In the church of Jesus Christ, the universal church of Jesus Christ, there are no spectators. Everybody's in the game. And you know why? Because Christ put us in the game. There are no bench sitters in the church of Jesus Christ. A Christ-like pattern of life includes engagement in ministry of some kind. It anticipates the rewards, so it does not hold back. It accepts the raw realities of ministry, and it will not turn back. And it acknowledges the blessed results of ministry, so it will not take back. You know, this life story of William Borden, which I have interspersed throughout this message, portrays the essence of this kind of ministry. But you need to know the rest of the story. William Borden was a very wealthy man. He was born into a wealthy family. You may have recognized it by the name, but he was heir to the Borden Dairy Company. For a high school graduation gift, his parents sent him on a world tour. Well, that's quite a senior package, isn't it? A world tour. And while he was on that world tour, God got a hold of his heart, and that's when he decided that he was going to dedicate his life to being a missionary. The world was at its fingertips. Because of his heritage, his life had seemingly was predetermined from day one. That is, until he met Christ as his Lord and Savior. The deep and radical change in his life revealed Christ in all of his endeavors. And he felt called to this mission field, to, specifically to China, to this small group of Muslims there. And he planned to turn his back on every opportunity for a wealthy and successful career in business, which he, of which he had many. And he prepared well 
While at Yale University, he gave away his entire inheritance, his fortune. And during that time, he wrote two words on the back flap of his Bible. No reserves. Just before leaving for China, his father became seriously ill and was close to death and begged him to take over the family business and run the company. But he was determined to be engaged in the ministry of the gospel. And upon leaving, he wrote two more words in the back flap of his Bible. No retreat. Borden then went on to do graduate work at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey, and when he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed finally for China, hoping to work with those Muslims. And on the way to China, during a stopover in Egypt where he could study Arabic, he contracted cerebral meningitis and died within one month. He never made it to China. He never got to speak to that group of Muslims. All those years of school, all that sacrifice, all that self-surrender, a dedicated life seemingly wasted. But was it? You heard all the testimonies that I read. Apparently before his death, William Borden had the chance to consider the course of his life in Christ and the choices that he had made. Because when they opened to the back flap of his Bible after his death, Two more words were eternally preserved underneath the words, no reserves and no retreat. He had written these words, no regrets. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. That, my friends, is the essence of ministry in Christ. Paul would have been proud. Jesus must have been pleased. Let me leave you with this. What will be written on the back flap of your life when Jesus comes for you? Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you that you have living illustrations of your words of Scripture in people like William Borden and others, Lord God, people in our own midst that we know that are pouring themselves out for the work and the sacrifice and service of the faith for the people here at Fayette. Lord, we just put to rest one of those warriors just recently in the last couple of weeks and the testimony at his going home service were just astounding. May we take these examples, Lord God, and may they inspire us and motivate us to follow hard after Jesus, to run the race with endurance and finish the course. May we keep the faith so that at the end of our lives when we see you, Lord Jesus, you will be pleased. That is my prayer for myself and for all of you in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who gave himself totally for us. Amen.